Good morning, everyone. Uh, welcome to the second half of 2018. It is July, in case you weren't uh, aware of that. I don't know how that happened. It snuck up on us a little bit. It snuck up on me a little bit. Um, as Matthew shared, we're in the middle of uh, a series uh, called Etzer, Women of the Bible, where we've spent the last five weeks and then we'll spend the next three uh, looking at some of the women who've gone before us in our faith, whose footsteps uh, we walk in. Uh, Eve, uh, who was the first to be called Etzer. Etzer just means help in Hebrew. Uh, there was Hagar, there was Rizpah, Deborah, and then last week we looked at Anna. And today we're uh, going to talk about Mary of Nazareth, as Matthew mentioned, Mary the mother of Jesus. And we're actually going to look at specifically uh, the Song of Mary, all right, the Song of Mary. So I want to start with just a very easy icebreaker. Turn to your neighbor and share with them a song or two that takes you somewhere in your memory, a song or two that means something to you, okay? And then share with them what, where, where that takes you, okay? Two minutes, go. All right, let's, let's, let's come back together. Before we go too far down memory lane, um, does anyone want to share their song and or where it, what, what it reminded them of? Anyone? Yeah. Uh, when I was in church camp growing up in middle school, I would always sing that song, Pharaoh, Pharaoh, oh, baby. And I know the hand gestures still, and I like, performed it in a talent show multiple times. Wow. We might have to put on a talent show sometime. <laughs> anyone else? Wow, that's some good timing. So, um, so our, uh, the interesting thing is, like our songs, um, like they date us, right? Like we we know <laughs> who we're talking to by what kind of songs usually. Um, I actually I wrote a, a, a blog about 11 years ago right, reflecting on how music is is a mnemonic device. It helps us remember things, right? The, there's sound. It's you know our brain codes things in a certain way. These sounds with these memories or these sensations, and um, uh, you know because it's I'm supposed to lead with vulnerability. Here are a few of mine. <laughs> I did not ask Justin Henry to find slides of these, but he did. So <laughs> the first song is. Celine Dion's My Heart Will Go On from the movie Titanic, and then Boyz II Men's Four Seasons of Loneliness. They both came out when I was in high school in Hong Kong, and they remind me of listening to music on the school bus with my best friend sharing a set of earphones. Right? Remember we used to do that sometimes? And, uh, and we listened by a disc man. Remember these? And a Walkman. You know, listening to cassette tapes. Um, anything from U2's All That You Can't Leave Behind album or David Gray's White Ladder or Coldplay's Parachute immediately transport me back to college in London and particularly to my first year uh, when I don't remember doing much work at all, um, but I do remember staying up late a lot and drinking lots of tea. And then uh, more recently, Jason Mraz's I Won't Give Up was the song that Carolyn and I danced to at our wedding. And so, oh, I'll take that. Um, <laughs> Uh, so whenever I hear that, it sort of takes me back to St. Francis Hall in Northeast D.C. four summers ago with no clue what the next few years would bring. Um, so music, as I said, it's a mnemonic device. It helps us remember things, sometimes viscerally, as, as smells do, too, right? And, and by the way, in case you were wondering, uh, following distracting sentimental musical rabbit trails can be very detrimental for sermon writing. 
But uh, I still remember the songs that I was taught um, as a kid, as Crystal did, um, where Bible verses were, were put to music uh, so we could memorize them easier. I think there was one week Matthew sang a little bit of a ditty that he was taught to remember all the books of the Bible. Um, I won't ask him to, to reel that one back out. Um, I'm pretty sure Carolyn has sung to me a time or two. There's apparently a song with all the U.S. states. Okay, I, that's not one I grew up with in Hong Kong. <laughs> But if you think about the songs we sing or the, or, or the hymns we sing, it's more likely that your theology is shaped by the songs you remember than by theological suppositions or even Bible verses because you remember them. Amazing grace, how sweet the sound that saved a wretch like me. I once was lost, but now I'm found. I was blind, but now I see. And so today I want to talk about the Song of Mary. It's also known as the Magnificat, which is just the first word of the Latin translation. Because I didn't want to just provide a, a factual biography of Mary. There are uh, you know, a lot of stories about her or that involve her, meaning that there were a lot of episodes for me to choose from, from you know, the first time we encounter her as an unmarried teenage girl whom God chooses to be the mother of his son, and, and she responds with that beautiful line, Here am I, the servant of the Lord. Let it be with me according to your word. There's the depths of an attempted murder by King Herod. It forces her and her family to flee as refugees seeking asylum to Egypt. There's that time when Jesus is a boy that Mary and Joseph forget him at the temple. There's that awkward moment when Jesus is grown up and he's in full-on ministry mode and, and Mary and her other sons go looking for him and he responds by saying, Who are my mother and my brothers? I'm sure that went down real well. But Mary is there at the cross, too. Right? She sees her son die. And, and there's a strange symmetry to her being an unwed, pregnant teenager at the beginning of the story and a widowed mother of a convicted criminal, an unjustly executed victim of the state at the end of the story. Right? She's surrounded by gossip and whispers about her reputation at the beginning and at the end. And let's be honest, in the middle, too. Right? Jesus wasn't always a polite observer of social or cultural or religious norms, and I'm sure no parent has ever been blamed or felt responsible for their children's behavior, even when they've grown up. I thought about exploring Mary as a mother, imagining what Jesus might have learned from her. I mean, we know how much he's like his father, right? He's the fullest embodiment of God, after all. But how much was he like his mother? What characteristics of hers did, did, did he pick up? What idiosyncrasies, what, what quirks, what habits, what passions, what values, what dreams. Uh, ultimately, I decided to focus on her song because, as we'll see, it reflects much of the rest of her life. And so let me invite you to stand as you're able to reverence the reading of God's Word. And I'd ask us to read this together. Be Luke chapter 1, beginning at verse 46. Read with me. And Mary said, My soul magnifies the Lord, and my spirit rejoices in God my Savior. For he has looked with favor on the lowliness of his servant. Surely from now on all generations will call me blessed. For the Mighty One has done great things for me, and holy is his name. His mercy is for those who fear him from generation to generation. He has shown strength with his arm. 
He has scattered the proud in the thoughts of their hearts. He has brought down the powerful from their thrones and lifted up the lowly. He has filled the hungry with good things and sent the rich away empty. He has helped his servant Israel in remembrance of his mercy, according to the promise he made to our ancestors, to Abraham and to his descendants forever. This is the word of the Lord. Thanks be to God. You may have a seat. So today I want to share two, two lessons I learned from Mary, one from what she does and one from what she says. But before I do that, let me provide some context. So this song is found in the very first chapter of Luke's gospel. So it's early on. Thus far in the story, the only things that have happened are the announcement of the birth of John the Baptist to an elderly couple, Zechariah the priest and his wife Elizabeth, the announcement of the birth of Jesus to, of, uh, of Jesus to Mary, who, remember, at this time is a young, unmarried girl, probably around 13 or 14 years old. And then Mary goes to visit Elizabeth, who we learn is a relative of hers. And she goes, it seems, because after the angel tells her that she's going to get pregnant by the Holy Spirit, the angel tells her that her relative, Elizabeth, is also pregnant. And Mary knows Elizabeth is old. She knows that, you know, Uncle Zechariah and Aunt Elizabeth haven't been able to have children. Maybe that was the talk around the table when they weren't around. And so maybe she goes at least in part to confirm the angel's words. Maybe she was like, you know, I'm, I'm not sure how this getting pregnant without a human father thing is going to work. I'm also not sure how old Aunt Elizabeth could be pregnant. So let me go see. And as a quick side note, think about, think about this. 13 or 14-year-old girl traveling presumably without her parents for three to five days in the Judean countryside to visit her relatives, that tells us something about her already, right? Even if she was traveling with a caravan, which was more than likely, this young woman had some courage. She had some fortitude, some independence, some fire in her. And when she arrives at Elizabeth, she's like, okay, auntie is pregnant. <laughs> the angel was right about her. And so... Maybe the angel is right about me. And that's confirmed when Elizabeth greets her saying, Blessed are you among women and blessed is the fruit of your womb. And with that confirmation of the angel's words, Mary sings her song. And it's a song that has resonance with other songs in scripture. The songs of Moses and Miriam after the, the Israelites escaped from Egypt in the Exodus. The song of Deborah after God delivered the Israelites from Sisera and the Canaanites, which we heard about a couple of weeks ago. The song of Asaph in 1 Chronicles after King David returned the Ark of the Covenant to Jerusalem. And then the most common comparison, the song of Hannah, the mother of the prophet Samuel, after she dedicated her son to the work of the Lord. So we find elements of Mary's song throughout Scripture, so that her song is like a tapestry woven from the threads of other songs from all across the Bible. And so here's the first lesson I learned from Mary, from what she does. What I learned from her is that worship matters, okay? Worship matters. Now, typically when we hear the word worship, we probably think of music. And, and music can be worship, but worship is bigger than that, right? Worship is an action backed up by an attitude of the heart. It's doing everything as unto the Lord. And music is the, one of the most emotive ways to do that, one of the most emotive ways to demonstrate that, right? It's the act of bringing ourselves uh, to God, of engaging with God, of utilizing not just our minds as we think about things, but also our voices as we sing, our bodies as we stand or as we move, our ears as we hear those around us, our arms or our legs as we physically express the things that are inside of us, whether by kneeling or by raising our arms. 
Worship matters. And if we think about worship, there are at least two major functions that I want to point out. First, worship is expressive. Worship is expressive, and by that I mean it allows us to express ourselves. It gives us words and sounds to say what we want to say. Mary sings, My soul magnifies the Lord, and my spirit rejoices in God my Savior, for he has looked with favor on the lowliness of his servant. You can feel there's an excitement there. There's a palpable joy. You know that the words she's singing, because she's not just speaking these things. We lose a lot. But imagine her, she's singing these words. The words are erupting. They're bursting forth from within. They're an overflow of what she's feeling inside. We need to learn to express ourselves to God, to voice whatever we're feeling to God, just like children need to learn words to express what they're feeling. Right? I'm, I'm hungry, I'm thirsty, I need to go potty, I want to go home, I love you. If only they were expressed like that. But worship can help us do that, to express ourselves. Sometimes through spoken words, sometimes through music, but it could also be through painting or, or dance or poetry, through signs and actions. But children don't just need words that will help them express themselves. Right? They also need to be taught things that will help them grow and become healthy and loving individuals. Words like please and thank you. Concepts like right and wrong and responsibility and privilege and stewardship. I remember when I was 15 years old, getting ready to head to boarding school in England, and my parents sat me down at the dinner table on a hot and humid summer's day in Hong Kong, not unlike summers here in D.C. And my dad said, as you go, I want you to remember one word. I want you to remember one word. I said, okay. My dad, being my dad, uh, loving word games and word play and probably at a subconscious level feeling the need to teach his teenage son patience. I may just be projecting. <laughs> my dad wouldn't just tell me the one word. He said, the hint is Samson. The hint is Samson. And I was like, I was confused, but you know, it's my dad. I'm playing along. I guessed anyway. Strength, no. Courage, no. Samson. Hair, <laughs> no. Women, no. It turns out the reference, he was referring to um, the classic movie by Cecil B. DeMille, Samson and Delilah. Okay, our family enjoyed a good biblical epic now and again. <laughs> and the reference was specifically to the lead actor who plays Samson, whose name is, anyone know? Victor Mature. The one word was maturity. <laughs> the hint was Samson, the word was maturity. And so if you find it hard to follow me when I'm preaching, I may just blame it on my dad. I'm sure that's how it works. But my point is, the concept of maturity needed to be introduced to me by someone else. Okay? It wasn't just going to happen naturally. It wasn't just going to naturally well up. My natural inclination is to look out for me, to seek my own comfort, to seek the path of least resistance. And I can tell you that because that's exactly what happened when I left home. And I left the structures and the oversight of my parents. In the same way, worship isn't just expressive, it's also formative. 
It doesn't just give words to what we already want to say. It also helps us learn what is good and right and healthy and life-giving and true. See, expressive worship is, is subjective because it comes out of us. And to that extent, it may be true to us, but it may not convey the whole story all the time. Uh, one example of this is, is Psalm 51. It's one of my favorite psalms. It was written by King David after he had used his power to coerce uh, Bathsheba into sleeping with him. And when he got her pregnant, he tried to get her husband to come home from the war to sleep with her to cover it up. And when her husband wouldn't do that, he ordered her husband killed so that he could marry Bathsheba and protect his reputation. Now, eventually, David is confronted, and he comes to realize he's done something wrong. And so he repents, and he writes this, this beautiful and heartfelt confession to God. And there's a line in it where he says to God, Against you and you will only have I sinned and done what is evil in your sight. And I'm thinking... Bathsheba and her dead husband, Uriah, might beg to differ. Now, David didn't just sin against God, although all sin is sin against God in some form. He quite clearly sinned against other people too. Now, does that make his psalm false or untrue? I don't think so. It's an expression of what he's feeling. And in that moment, in that sense, it's a true expression of sorrow and remorse and repentance. But it's not complete. It's not all there is. Being able to express ourselves is important. Our wants, our feelings, our fears, our desires. We have those within us, and God does not intend for us to simply ignore them. We do need to learn to communicate those things. But the answer is not simply to let it all out, to act on every impulse, to speak every thought, to flood others with everything we're feeling. That's not an uncommon inclination in our social media world. The answer is to be formed by God so that we might release those things into the right channels. We might steer them toward productive and generative ends rather than to dissipation or self-gratification. And the discernment of what is right and what is healthy and what is good is part of maturity, growing up. The answer is to discipline our desires so that they might serve as fuel for a long obedience in a Godward direction. And to do that, we need to be formed. We need to have words to teach us what is good and right and true. So in Mary's song, she sings about God's goodness and blessing toward her. She says, He has looked with favor on me. The Mighty One has done great things for me. And that's expressive worship. But she also engages in formative worship. She sings truths about God. And about who he is, verse 50, his mercy is for those who fear him from generation to generation. Now, just a quick explainer, this is a whole other sermon, but the fear of the Lord is not the same as fear of humans. The phrase fear of the Lord, it refers to a healthy reverence, a respect for something awesome, for something powerful. Think of electricity or fire. Those things are not to be treated lightly or carelessly. But what Mary is doing in her song is she is grounding her subjective feelings, her expression, important as it is, in objective truth as well, in larger realities that have formed her and that are forming her. So worship matters. Worship, both expressive and formative, matters. They go hand in hand. And worship requires time and attention and intention. See, I can sing songs in church all day long, but if my heart isn't engaged, it's not worship. 
I can read the words of the Bible, but if my heart isn't engaged, it's not worship. Worship requires intention. Mary actively engaged God with what she was feeling and thinking. She took time to reflect on the things that had happened and allowed it to come out of her in song. And so how and when do you worship God? How and when do you worship God? Because we all worship something, and we can discern that by the things we spend our time doing, the things we direct our attention to, the things that, uh, that we allow to form our worldview or our understanding of what's right and wrong. Sunday morning gatherings can be a part of that. They can be a part of your worship. I hope it, I hope it is. But there are too many voices offering too many alternatives for us to think that one hour a week is enough to sustain us. If worship matters, how and when do you worship God? And I'm not just talking about, you know, quiet times. I'm not just talking about singing. But I am talking about an intentionality of time with God. Like worship is doing everything in the presence of God and with an awareness of God. But where are those those concentrated moments. And the second lesson is, is gleaned from what Mary says. Okay? So the first lesson is uh, worship matters. The second lesson is gleaned from what Mary says. Let me introduce it like this. There's a concept that comes through in the Gospels that theologians call the great reversal. Okay? The great reversal. You may have heard it talked about in another way, uh, maybe as the, the upside-down nature of the kingdom of God. Okay? You know, Jesus says, uh, the last shall be first and the first shall be last. If you want to be great, you need to be a servant. It's that sort of idea of flipping things. The Magnificat, Mary's song, is the reversal in song form. The great reversal. And we see it most clearly in verses 51 to 53. She says, God has shown strength with his arm. He has scattered the proud in the thoughts of their hearts. He has brought down the powerful from their thrones and lifted up the lowly. He has filled the hungry with good things, but has sent the way, rich away empty. Now, some of those things can feel harsh when we read them. We might think, but, but the, the proud need God too, right? The, the powerful need God too, right? We're supposed to pray for our rulers. And just, just how rich do you have to be to be rich and sent away empty? Right? You get the same feeling when I read Luke's version of the Beatitudes. So we, we prayed Matthew's version earlier, but uh, Luke's version, you know, he, he starts in a similar way to Matthew. Blessed are, are the poor and the hungry. Blessed are you who weep now. Blessed are you when people uh, persecute you on the account of Jesus. That's, a, that's a already a bit of challenge in itself. But unlike in Matthew's gospel, Luke then flips over to the other side and he says, But woe to you who are rich, for you have already received your consolation. Woe to you who are full now. For you will go hungry. Woe to you who are laughing now, for you will mourn and weep. Woe to you when all speak well of you, for that is what their ancestors did to the false prophets. Let me tell you, that's, that's uncomfortable. Because God may be talking to me. God may be talking to me. And maybe that's the point. See, there's a, there's a saying that God comforts the afflicted and afflicts the comfortable. God comforts the afflicted and afflicts the comfortable. Now, we want to think that God treats us all the same. We want some sort of equivalence, kind of like in news channels where they have, you have one 
voice from each side, and that's sort of like, you know, as long as we have one from each side, that's great. That's, that's what we want, balance. But I don't think that God is overly concerned with equivalence, or at least a false equivalence. I don't, I, I don't think that God treats us all the same. I don't think that God sees us all as faceless creations whom he just splashes with the equal amount, same amount of grace and blessing, the same rations for everyone. Now, does God love all of us the same? I believe that yes, God loves every single one of us as much as anyone ever has or ever could. Does God want the best for every single one of us? Absolutely. Although some of us, maybe most of us, maybe all of us need to realize that his definition of best is probably a little different from ours. Did Jesus die for every one of us? No doubt. God so loved the world that he gave his only son that whoever, whoever believes in him shall not perish but have the eternal kind of life. Does God long for every single person to be saved? Yes. And to come to a knowledge of the truth. It's in 1 Timothy. Does God offer grace to everyone? Yes, God makes the sun rise on the evil and the good and sends rain on the righteous and unrighteous. But does God treat us all the same? On the evidence of, well, most of Scripture and, and certainly the life and ministry of Jesus, I've, I've got to say no. Let me use an analogy. If you had three kids, would you treat them all the same? What about if one was in high school, and one in elementary school, and one in diapers? Would you treat them all the same? Same bedtime, same curfew, same diet, same conversations, same class suggestions, same pocket money, same chores. I'm not talking about when they're all the same age. I'm talking about right now. If one of the kids was coming out of a foster home, would you treat them all the same? If one had special needs, would you treat them all the same? If one had been adopted from another race or ethnicity, would you treat them all the same? If was, one was working through their gender identity, would you treat them all the same? If one got in an accident or struggled with math or had an allergy or got lost, I think you get the point. Isn't it more loving? And I, I, I'd like to think we'd all say we'd love them all the same. But isn't it more loving for us to treat them in a way that reflects and responds to their individuality and their unique personhood in a way that seeks their good and their flourishing? And isn't the path to their good and their flourishing contingent on and shaped by where they are right now, by their present needs? You see what I'm getting at? We see it in the way God interacts with us on an in individual level, right? Sometimes we need a word of encouragement. And other times, we need to be challenged. We need to be convicted. And so theologian Joel Green, he writes about the, this, this song. He says, the way that God deals with the powerful and the mighty is through strength to bring them down. The way God deals with the humble and lowly is through mercy. That's what the great reversal is about. And, and that's what we see in the way Jesus treated people in general. Right? If you go through and look at every conversation that Jesus has or every interaction that Jesus has, he treats them based on where they are and who they are. He doesn't have the same approach to everybody. He has an acute awareness of need. 
a heightened sensitivity to an understanding of what would be best, not just for the individual, not just for the family, but for groups of families, for a society. Uh, I love uh, this definition of sin from science fiction author Terry Pratchett. Through one of his characters, he wrote, sin is when you treat people like things. Sin is when you treat people like things. And that's why the four groups that are most often mentioned in Scripture as those under God's special protection were the poor, the orphan, the widow, and the immigrant. Those who had the most needs in society, those who were the most vulnerable, those who were most often taken advantage of, those who were most likely to be treated as things, as disposable. Mary's song is a statement of the economy and the politics of God's kingdom. So a friend of mine was at the Louvre Museum in Paris recently, and she wrote uh, about seeing uh, the original Code of Hammurabi. Code of Hammurabi is an ancient slab from 18th century BC. And on the Code of Hammurabi are, are engraved the, the laws of the Babylonian Empire. I think we have a close-up. So uh, the next slide, I think, has a closer look. The Code of Hammurabi offers a, a fascinating and well-preserved glimpse into the laws of the day, 18th century BC, so almost 4,000 years ago. And it addresses a range of topics from divorce and inheritance to contracts and liability and crime and punishment as well. And the interesting thing is that even though the law, in, in the Babylonian law, was striving for a certain kind of equality, criminal punishment was often contingent on the social status of the perpetrator and the victim. Okay, so this is from the History Channel. While one law commanded, if a man knocks out the teeth of his equal, his teeth shall be knocked out. Committing the same crime against a member of a lower class was punished with only a fine. Okay, knock out the teeth of someone who's equal to you, you get your own teeth knocked out. But punish someone, uh, hit someone who's, who's lower down than you, you just have to pay a fine. If a man killed a pregnant maidservant, he was punished with a monetary fine. But if he killed a, pregnant, a, a freeborn free pregnant woman, his own daughter would be killed as retribution. The code also listed different punishments for men and women with regard to marital infidelity. Men were allowed to have extramarital relationships with maidservants and slaves, but philandering women were to be bound and tossed into the Euphrates River along with their lovers. See, throughout history, and honestly, even in the present, there is a temptation to treat the powerful and the wealthy and the socially respectable as people because they may treat us well in return and to treat the poor and the vulnerable and the marginalized as things because they make us uncomfortable or they make us face our own complicity. Even in the early church, even in the early church, Jesus' brother James had to write a letter telling at least one congregation to stop offering preferential treatment to the rich. See, our standing before God is not based on our merits. It's based on our needs. And Father William Maestri calls this treatment justice. This is what he says. He says, justice in the Bible is far from a balancing of scales and giving in hope of return. Justice is never based on mere merit, but looks to needs. Justice in the Bible is not the blindfolded lady justice. Justice in the Bible is the God who sees every one of us. 
who knows every heart and every soul, who created the hair on every head, who sees the successes and the shadows of each one of us and draws each one of us toward life, whether that comes by raising the heads of those who are downtrodden and lowly or actually by bringing down the proud and the mighty. Now, before we start placing ourselves in the hero's role as we are wont to do, here's the other thing. When we think about justice, we tend to be inclined because I, I, I get that feeling. We want to be, the things that we get angry about and we feel just, uh, righteous about, we, we want to call that righteous anger. We want, always want to feel like God gave me this and God may have given us that. But if we're honest, we tend to be inclined to have a bit of retribution in our justice. Right? If, if we're being honest, there's at least a piece of us that wants people to pay. And yet, as I was reminded by Brazilian theologian Leonardo Boff, God flings the proud of heart to the earth in the hope that they will be delivered from their ridiculous vaunting and flaunting to become free and obedient children of God and brothers and sisters to others. Right? That's why God does it. About 10 years ago, I was interning at an anti-human trafficking organization, and I was working on a Bible study curriculum. And in the process of writing, I, I was confronted, I had to face the question of what do I want for the perpetrators? What do I want for the traffickers, pimps? I want them to stop, yeah. I want them to be brought to justice, yes. I want them to pay for what they've done, for the lives they've destroyed, for treating people like things. And that is a part of justice. But the justice of God longs for them to be reined in and brought low and stopped so that they might become free and obedient children of God and brothers and sisters to others. That's loving our enemies, right? Like that's, that's why we're called to love our enemies. That's what God wants. The path for the, the proud of heart and for those who are unaware of their own need for God, for those who treat people as things, that may include righteous judgment. It may include a humbling or a humiliation, and that is sobering because I have been and done all of those things. I've been proud of heart. I have been unaware of my own need for God. I have treated people as things. God's methods are always because God longs for life and wholeness and flourishing for each and every one of us. The love of God isn't just upside down out there. It challenges our own inclinations, right? We, we want to think that our sin is sort of just like dust on our skin that we can brush off. But more often our sin is deep within. It's fused to our marrow and it's removable only by God's surgery. And let me tell you, surgery is not pain-free. Mary's song gives us a glimpse into the kingdom of God, the values of the kingdom of God, what it looks like. And it was Mary's son who brought it, right, more fully to earth, who taught and lived out the justice and love of God that meets each of us where we are and with what we need, even when what we need is not what we think we want. I imagine Mary singing this song over little baby Jesus as he slept and then singing it to him at, bed, at bedtime as he grew up. 
singing to him about the God who lifts up the lowly and casts down the proud, who overturns injustice and cares for the most vulnerable. Maybe a song for our day. I imagine her singing the song again to herself as she watched him grow up and do this very thing in his life and his ministry, challenging the rulers, overturning the tables of injustice, caring for the sick and the poor, welcoming the little children. Maybe this is our protest song. I imagine her singing this again at the cross in tears as she watched her son die because of the life he had lived all so that we might have life. And this is a song also for our dark moments to remind us of who God is, remind us of the God who is at work. And you know, the last appearance of Mary in the Bible is in Acts chapter 1, verse 14. After Jesus is raised from the dead and ascends into heaven, we're told the disciples return to Jerusalem and it says, all these, all the disciples were constantly devoting to prayer together with certain women, including Mary, the mother of Jesus, as well as his brothers. The same ones that went and looked for him and he said, who are my mothers and my mother and my brothers? And I'm sure that didn't go down too well then, but they're here now. You know, I imagine her singing this song with the disciples as the Holy Spirit came upon them in power, and the church was born. Right? I love how Mary gave birth to phys Jesus' physical body and then was part of his spiritual body. Right? She was his birth mother, and then she was invited into his family. And so Mary is an etzer. Mary is, an, is a help because she points us as individuals and as a community to Jesus and invites us to become more like him. This song is the soundtrack of our salvation. The prophet Micah spoke these words to the people of Israel. What does the Lord require of you but to do justice, to love kindness, and to walk humbly with your God? What does that look like for you? As we've learned about the justice of God, the justice as it is in the Bible, the justice that is based on needs and not on merit. Maybe it looks like speaking up or standing up against injustice, as many did yesterday, protesting family separations. Maybe it looks like becoming more aware of those in need and what they need, whether that's people around you, people in your family, people you're in relationship with, or even yourself. Maybe it looks like allowing God to break our hearts for what break His. To follow His example in comforting the afflicted and afflicting the comfortable. All in humility, obviously. right? Humility and repentance, especially when we realize that we might be the comfortable. And it may be for those who are tired, feeling at the end of our rope, allowing ourselves to fall into the arms of a God who is just. A God who heals, a God who sustains the weary, a God of peace and wholeness, and letting Him, letting the Spirit lift, lift your head. And maybe all of the above. 
whatever you need today and whatever God has been saying to you today, the invitation, as the band comes up, the invitation is, is twofold. Every week here at Christ City Church, we take communion together. And so the first invitation is to come. Come to the table. Come, take the body and blood of Jesus. Come acknowledge the sacrifice of our Savior so that we might have life. Come receive the love of God so that you might be filled with the love of God for others. And we'll give you the bread and you can dip it in the juice. We have a gluten-free option here. The second invitation is to come receive prayer. We have prayer counselors off to the sides who would love to stand with you or to, to be with you before God. With whatever, whatever you need to get off your chest, uh, whether you need to express yourself in some way, you know, maybe you need to recommit yourself to the work of justice or to cry out to God for justice. Or whether you just need to be prayed over, you need to be reminded of what God says is true because you've lost your bearings or you've lost sight of Him somewhere. And so as you're ready, there's no rush, there's no pressure on you to come up at a certain time. As you're ready, communion service will be at the front. And as you're ready, we invite you to come.